Hello again, and welcome back to The Geomologist Presents RPG A Day 2021. And uh, yeah, this won't be that small because I have a lot of call-ins from people who are, I guess, are very interested in what I have to say. I did not think that Game of Thrones would engender the response and reply from so many people. And just to be clear, while I did enjoy the first book, and early on in the season, I agree with most people that it gets old. And uh, I will make some responses a little later on to some of the comments and call-ins. But uh, we have call-ins from Barney Dicker and Arlen Walker coming up. And then I talk about what small has reminded me of. So, Carl, you played my message. We played a game. You talked about the game that I ran. So I guess that's me just finding my way. Thank you very much to getting into your podcast. So it is. So it is. And you talk about flavour. And I think flavour is, really, is a really nice phrase. You know, I've... It's tone. Tone is often talked about. I've talked about tone. Others have talked about tone. And I, what I like about flavor is that maybe tone and flavor are slightly different things. And I don't really know how or why, but it's nice to be able to, to, to have those two words in our uh, vocabulary. Now, of course, I realize that flavor is the topic of RPG a day month. So um, it's great that you're talking about it. It's great that everyone else is talking about it. It's great that we have flavor as another possible word, like I say. Um, uh, but Carl, I'm not gonna call in to other people and tell them that I'm really pleased they're talking about flavor. I'm just gonna say that I'm pleased that you're talking about flavors. <laughs> That's that. See you. Bye. Hey, Barney. Thanks for the call-in. And yes, it's super fun to play your games. I'm glad that you have alternate flavors in the types of games that you create and and run. And it, I'd love to be a part of that table any day. So thanks again for the call. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Hey, Carl. It's Arlen. I'm calling in about Joe Richter's message about Game of Thrones to say... The Joe is absolutely fucking right that Game of Thrones is super overrated. It is not a very good series, in my opinion. Um, and there are a couple of kind of ways to to point that out. One is that, you know what George Martin's comment on Lord of the Rings is? He asks about what is Aragorn's tax policy after he becomes king, which is just a great summation of what's wrong with Game of Thrones, which is nobody gives a shit about Aragorn's tax policy except George Martin. And so who cares? Um, but also... Game of Thrones isn't even the best book about those characters because there's Robert Irwin's Wonders Will Never Cease, which is a historical fantasy about the Wars of the Roses that um, the viewpoint character is the character that is the basis for Jamie Lannister, Anthony the, the Anthony Woodville, the Lord Scales, whose sister marries Edward the Fourth. Um, anyway, the point being 
that um, that book is way better. It's shorter than any of the Game of Thrones books are by themselves. So it's vastly shorter than the series and it's way better than the whole thing as a whole. It's, it's so good. It's like actually a legitimately like great capital G great book for fantasy. Um, and it's super underrated. So anyway, read, read wonders will never cease instead of game of Thrones because game of Thrones is super overrated. That's my comment. Joe is definitely right. He's got it. You know, they're a chore to get through. There's so much stuff. And there's so much that's like really, I think, is supposed to come across as groundbreaking, but it's absolutely not. Like like all the Tyrion stuff that is like, oh, look, it's somebody who is physically deformed, but they're not like, you know, uh, that's not a reflection of their character and all that sort of stuff. And it's like, yeah, okay, I get that. But are you going to do anything like more interesting with him than that? Or is it just going to be that metaphor over and over and over again? And um, yeah, that's, that's what game of Thrones is, is uh, a couple of good ideas. And they got turned into a really big TV show because people like titties in their fantasy. And um, also because I think people, a lot of people who, hadn't ever kind of seen something like it that would have been just fine with something equivalent. Like Game of Thrones is basically just Downton Abbey, but for dudes who want to see, you know, people sword fight and dragons blow each other, fire at each other and all that sort of stuff. Um, you know what I mean? Hey Arlen, thanks for the call-ins again. I don't, well, I am surprised that Game of Thrones generated so much not controversy, but discussion, I guess, let's call it. And um, like Joe Richter, I agree that a great show, I don't know if it would be better, I wonder if it was an animated show or like a live action show, but the the Malzahn Book of the Fallen would be a fantastic world to put a show in. I agree with you that there are better ways to tell the tale of the War of the Roses. And you mentioned a great one that I'm going to look up that I haven't read but I have read a lot of the Philippa Gregory series on the Plantagenets and the Tudors with uh, basically the Daughter of the Rivers and the White Queen and the Red Queen and all of that, going back to Elizabeth uh, Woodville uh, and then on down the line of the Plantagenets and Tudors. And Philippa Gregory does a great job of this very epic tale but it is historical fiction, and there have been shows on stars, I believe. Uh, I know there's been White Queen and White Princess and Spanish Princess that are about those. And there's some really great acting, and um, I would say probably better than that goes on, the, that which goes on in Game of Thrones. Very compelling from the film versions wise and then the books are very good as well so there you go there are better things we realize but I, my point was that i mean well look at the discussion that game of thrones has developed people like it or they hate it it was it did give a lot of, get, did get a lot of promotion and um has put fantasy series on the map whether you like it or not i believe 
Hey, Carl, it's Arlen starting the series of call-ins again because I lost my place. Um, but basically what I wanted to mention was a sort of element of the culture around swords that I think is important for the discussion around swords and spears, which is to say that because swords are more expensive, that wearing a sword is a little bit like wearing heavy armor in that it is a demonstration of wealth, which in pre-modern times generally means also the capacity to practice with that weapon um, and be familiar with its use in a way that a, a farmer wouldn't, excuse me. And so while swords might not always be the most effective weapon, especially if you're talking about like, you know, a big shield wall where you want your spear to, to poke over the shield wall and that sort of stuff. Um, I think it is fair to say that swords really are a signifier of martial martial ability that becomes significant in the same way that heavy armor for a lot of cultures is pretty, or a lot of periods is a pretty significant indicator of not just somebody who's going to be hard to, to fight because their armor is effective, but also somebody who knows how to move in that armor because they have the time and the energy to practice with it because they're not spending their days tilling the fields and all that sort of stuff. So I think that's kind of an important cultural element too, to talk about that um, you know, because swords become so associated with martial ability that, you know, yes, a spear might be a more effective weapon in a lot of situations, but carrying a sword is a way to um, prevent violence at all or to demonstrate capacity for violence, even if the carrier also has a spear, because we know that a lot of historical warriors would carry a, a spear or a polearm as sort of their main weapon and then a sword as a sidearm. And that, I think, is also one thing that a lot of RPGs are not very good at, that um, there's not really a sense of the idea, the way that, you know, it takes years and years of practice to be really good at fighting with a specific weapon or in a specific style or something like that. You know, it takes a long time to get really good and, you know, a lot of practice and a lot of practical experience. And that's just not something that a lot of RPGs, uh, I think model very well. You know, you talk about like D and D style fighters that just pick up a bow and know how to shoot and you go, but wait a second, it takes, you know, years and years of practice to learn how to judge the, the alteration of the arrow, the way that, cause you pull the arrow, the, the fletching back to the ear, not to the eye. And so you have to adjust for the slight variation there at least with a longbow so anyway i guess my ultimate point is that if you were you know sent back into medieval times through a malfunctioning time machine or something like that and couldn't get your way out um you know don't expect to be able to fight somebody with a sword just because you have a spear because that person with the sword probably knows how to use the sword. Whereas no guarantee of, you know, a peasant with a spear actually having much ability beyond just sort of poking with it. Um, so that's my, just as a sort of cultural thing that I think was not reflected in that discussion and didn't necessarily need to be the, the discussion was more about the kind of, um, practical use of the weapon but i think it is important to talk about that kind of cultural thing because it partially also explains sort of the mystique around swords that um swords are associated with martial ability and that that's a sort of reflexive 
I'd love it when you call in, Arlen, especially about real-world-related things to our gaming hobby. I love your scholarly approach to many of these topics that we discuss, and I think it brings a lot of depth and interest, at least to me, and I'm sure to many, many others, about our game and how to make our narratives more exciting and realistic, which is a plus for me, and how to simulate better how the rules interpret the actions that we perform in these fantasy games. So a great uh, series of calls, again, both from for Game of Thrones and for the topic of weapons, swords specifically. And uh, I will talk to you soon. Thanks again for the calls, Arlen. So this brings me to the topic of small, and I was really debating over what to talk about. I think I had initially wanted to talk about small as a descriptor in various incarnations of D&D, but I think I'm going to be a bit more specific based on the following quote, that even the smallest person in the world can change the course of history. And that is from Lady Galadriel, played like Kate Blanchett in the Lord of the Rings movie. And as many of us know the Lord of the Rings, we know that this refer this is really a point where Frodo is feeling very despairing, is despairing about the loss of some of the companions, especially while Gandalf had just passed away in Moria, they're recovering in Lothlorien. And Lady Galadriel encourages him with this quote. And as we know in The Lord of the Rings, it is Frodo and Bilbo who destroy the ring right at the end. So the small folk, the halflings, are the ones that do this. <clears throat> so that brings me to the topic of discussion about halflings. And I'm going to try to do this, and I don't want to go over long because I already have about 12 minutes worth of calls and responses. So let's look at halflings through the various incarnations of D&D. And I don't have od and I don't think they were in there, but I could be mistaken. There are other better scholars of the history of our game than me, but I'm going to start with halflings in BX. And halflings in BX uh, is, they are, it's race as class, or species as class in this game. Um, they do have restrictions. They can only advance to 8th level. They um, have special abilities, though, and they get a bonus to dex. They have this very controversial ability that I've seen put to use. In the outdoors, they can seemingly vanish as well. And um, they have some prime requisites, but that's about it. So in BX, there are a few things. It's... You know, again, and then when we get to AD&D, O and BX, they also have a plus one to hit with missile weapons, so they're a bit more accurate. When we get to AD&D, there's more codification. It is race, and then you choose the class. In AD&D, halflings can only be fighters and only up to sixth level, but they can have limited advancement as a thief. Now there is a little six in parentheses where Druid is, and it does say in the notes that if it's in parentheses, they can only be NPCs. So, hmm. 
Then there are different sub-races of halflings. There are hare feet, tall fellows, and stouts, and it looks like they are limited in strength. That um, hare feet limited to strength under 17 and can only be up, go up to fourth level, and tall fellows 17 and stouts 18 strength. It can be fifth level, but tall fellows that have 18 strength can be sixth level. So there are a lot of restrictions on that. I don't know if I'm a big fan of that, but that's kind of, I'm just looking at the rules. <clears throat> um, they have a minus one to strength and a plus one to dex when you create the character. And then when we get down to the descriptions, what special abilities do they have? So like I said, in AD&D, halflings are a lot more codified. Um, they do have a bonus to saving throws versus wands, staves, and rods. They do have a generally a better stat line for saving throws and BX as well. <clears throat> they have resistance to poison. They can speak uh, more languages. Uh, certain halflings have infravision. So mixed blood have 30 feet, stouts up to 60 feet. And they do have this sort of passage notation since I guess they live underground. They can, you know, they can look at uh, downgrades and they can determine directions. So they can move silently as well when they are by themselves. They do have a, like I said, a minus one to strength and a plus one to dex. So how does second edition change that? In second edition, things do not change much. They still have that minus one to strength and plus one to dex, that bonus to saves based on constitution. Oh, they have they have that plus one bonus to attack rolls when throwing weapons and slings. So they codify that a little more. I don't remember if that was in AD&D 1. And then they, they have the same abilities, but they're reinterpreted based on any changes that were made in uh, AD&D 2nd from 1st. So I honestly don't know what my point is yet. I'm trying to figure that out. And uh, But in 3.5, I guess what I'm just trying to show is like how things have changed over the years with regards to halflings. And halflings, I guess, because of the, in 3.5, um, the plus one, minus one, I guess there's a more of a range of, of target number for the D20 system. It's a plus two dex and minus two strength. It does codify small at this point. And as small creatures, the halflings get a plus one size to AC and attack rolls and plus four to hide. But they use smaller weapons, and that could affect other things. They get some bonuses to certain skills, and that is a, is a little different. Well, it's the same concept, but a little different from AD&D 1 and 2, where they have a bonus percentage to things like moving silently. But in this case, it's also climb, jump, and listen. Uh, a plus one bonus to all saving throws. So I guess they maintain that luck or have morphed the constitution bonus um, that they were getting against magic and poisons into this overall plus one saving throw. And they're, they are good against fear and they keep in the thrown weapons and slings. <laughs> so it's pretty interesting that, that some things I guess have stayed the same. Some things have changed throughout the different incarnations. Now, what about when we, I'm not going to talk about fourth. Um, I'll just jump straight to, to fifth here and in fifth they did something where they don't have any negatives to your ability score so dex goes up by two um, they have luck which they can re-roll 
when they roll a one on the dice, uh, they have an advantage to saving throws against Frightened. So that has stayed the same from 3-5 to 5. Um, and that's about it. They do have like a Lightfoot Halfling here in the SRD, and they also get a Charisma bonus, and they're naturally stealthy. Uh, they can... Um, yeah, they... Uh, yeah. You can hide when you're obscured by a creature that is larger than you. So, uh, not as much, and they did get rid of the bonus to throwing things um, and slings, which is interesting, but kept the idea of them being lucky. Um, and the dex thing seem the dex bonuses all seem to be there, so they're quick and lucky, I guess, in fifth edition. There are subtle nuances in Pathfinder and one and two. But they're, I think they're pretty similar, if I recall correctly, to the way halflings are defined in 3.5. Another game that I like to play that has halflings is Warhammer Fantasy. So how does that compare? And in this case, I'm only going to talk about Warhammer Fantasy 4th because there are different incarnations as well. And 4th is the one that I play. They And the other one that I played... Uh, much is um, second edition, and they do have halflings as well in there. And I, what I remember from that is that there are specific careers that halflings can go on. But here, when we look at something I do like, is that they don't say they drop that idea of race in Warhammer Fantasy and call them call these different humanoid species. So. Here, halfling species, um, when I look at the only thing that kind of can see what, how they're affected by mechanics, really, is when you get to the um, attributes. And generally speaking, it seems that only their strength and weapon skill is affected compared to humans, humans being the baseline. But again, what's very interesting is that there is a bonus to their ballistic skill and dexterity and willpower and fellowship so that charisma idea that uh, idea that they are um, strong-willed uh, good with throwing things or shooting things and dexterous is pretty interesting that it through all incarnations of various fantasy games that that concept is kept through i think something that is kind of cool recently though that might set apart where what game you want to play a halfling in is that they just came out with a book called um archives of the empire and there are halfling badger riders as well as field wardens but badger rider who does not want to ride a crazy badger as a half as an armored halfling so there you go small halflings uh, big heroes in classic fantasy tales like lord of the rings and uh very interesting that this brief little study shows that there are common concepts on how halflings are interpreted um, from AD&D, from BX to AD&D 1 and 2, to 3.5, to 5e, and then even a totally different game with a totally a very different mechanic um, has the same kind of concepts as halflings. So there you go. Small heroes, but the smallest in the world. The smallest person in the world. What is it, the quote again? Do I have to re-record this? No. 
I will get the quote right. Even the smallest person in the world, even the smallest person can change the course of history. There you go. Not my best work. I'm sorry. I want to do this in one take. I don't want to redo it to get all my ums and foibles and pauses. So there you go. Small. RPG a day 2021.